Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Don't lie to them like you did last week. Mean it this time, all right? Hey, it's so good to see you, uh, and welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall uh, if you need some help with that. And so what that means is you're going to uh, need a Bible to follow along with this story. So if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can borrow one of ours. You can slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. And then if you, uh, if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Three of you think that? Uh, every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So turn in your Bible uh, to the Gospel of John, the book of John. And if you're new to the Bible, you can start in the right and turn left, and you might find it faster. You can go two-thirds of the way through, and you'll find some guys' names that say Matt, Mark, Luke, and then John. I'm going to be in John chapter 5, starting in verse... One. We started this series uh, several weeks ago, and we're going to continue on for many more weeks to come. And uh, I hope that you're enjoying uh, the discussions that happen at Not So Small Group. Uh, I've been able to be at most of them, and, and I'm excited about uh, the fellowship that's getting to happen and, and the relationship that's happening. Uh, relationship happens on purpose, amen? And so be diligent about that. Uh, one of the ways we're trying to help with your, your study and uh, with not-so-small groups is a sermon note sheets. So I'm gonna, that's going to help us with the sermon and let you fill that up and, and kind of guide you through the sermon. So uh, we do sermon-based, relationally-driven small groups. And so when you get there on Wednesday and Thursday night, it's based on this sermon. And this will help remind you, trigger some points throughout the week that you can uh, kind of uh, journey through the text and, and back through uh, your uh, remembrance of the sermon. And so uh, if you didn't get one of those, you can slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one of those to you right here. I think uh, most everyone, a couple right there, right there. Uh, hey, turn to the Gospel of John, get your sermon note sheet out and say amen when you're there. Amen. amen. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this was after he was in Samaria, after he healed an official's son in Galilee, and then there's going to be this feast of the Jews. Everyone is in Jerusalem. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which having five roofed colonnades or five porches if you were uh, from the south and reading in the King James version uh, it had it had five porches out in front and that's a pretty big deal and in the, these laid a multitude of invalids blind lame and paralyzed one man there had been there 
who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Uh, you don't want to un underline that. Put an asterisk b beside that. What a question to ask. And maybe you think it goes without saying, but Jesus specifically asked him this question. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Sabbath not being Sunday, Sabbath being Saturday from sundown on Friday all the way through till sundown on Saturday would be considered the Sabbath. And so now this was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Wait, what? But he answered them, the man who healed me that said to me, take, he said, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said that? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. After Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, see, you are well. Now you're going to want to underline this, and maybe you're going to be frustrated with this. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And, when, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And then verse 18 is uh, a paramount verse that we need to pay attention to. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace that you would help us through this passage. You would help us uh, wrestle with the implications of this story that's been going viral for thousands of years. Let us uh, be contemplative today. Let us uh, wrestle with the text. Let us uh, study the more, all the more of the scriptures that point to the person of Jesus. Let us, every time we open the Bible, meet with you, Jesus. Let this propel us and carry us that everything we say and do would bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So there's some, uh, there's some things to kind of think through this storyline here. And so let me paint a little bit of a picture. There's this area, and it's around the side of the temple. And he points out that it's along the sheep gate, which is potentially where they brought the sheep in for slaughter. And then there's this pool, this nice fountain area, and there's kind of this superstition around this fountain. Now, there are many scholars will kind of debate on what actually happened at this 
pool. And uh, oftentimes, if you had read this in the King James Version, it would have added a little bit that for at one time an angel had went down into the waters and stirred the waters, and uh, whoever got into the waters first would be healed. And so uh, this kind of implies that, but this is not... um, this is not a Jewish story. This is not a Jewish tradition. This is not something we can find in the Hebrew Bibles. But there's this superstition about this fountain. And it's a nice fountain. And they built it for, with intentions of, of, of something nice here. But here's what's happened. is Because there's these, these five coverings, these five porches, what's happened with this nice fountain is that there's a multitude of people who are lame, paralyzed, often outcast, people that their families are unable to take care of them, or maybe their deed for their family member is to bring them to this place. Now, why would that be the case? And and it's not some spiritual reason, or maybe somebody told a superstitious thing, so they won't feel so bad about bringing their loved one there. We can interject in all of these different things. And so I would encourage you that when you hear someone preach a story, and this is kind of the the dangers of of narrative-like preaching, is sometimes we can pull these narrative things out of the Old Testament, and we can kind of make them do whatever we want them to do. And then we could say things, and if you get a really uh, spiritual preacher like myself, uh, you'll... (laughs) they'll say, well, God showed me this, right? And, and, and what God pointed out here about this particular passage. And so what we have is the text, and then what we know continues to happen then and now. Because here's what happens, is people are bringing their loved ones. Why? Because there's covering from the from the sun. It's a coastal community. The sun is hot and they're going to be laying there all day, potentially begging, potentially uh, uh, using their uh, position in a high traffic, uh, foot traffic area to maybe get something that they need. And so now the Bible says there's a multitude of people there and they've made encampments under each of the five porches. You've never seen encampments like this before, but try to picture it with me right? Uh, That's a joke, right? Uh, And and so uh, you can imagine this happening. Here's a place of of rest or solitude. This is a place where people can come. There's a fountain in the bottom. And and the superstition is that at one time an angel came down into the water and stirred the water and someone claimed or they saw that when the waters were bubbling, now there's some some kind of debate on whether this was on a hot springs. This is a fountain that, that the 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 wa- the water had potential like a metal in in it and so it had a red tint to it and so it had some type of 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 kind of nostalgia or superstition to it that if someone got into the water they were actually healed and now all of these people because of this one rumor this one story that someone had gotten healed from this this fountain now there's a multitude of people there just waiting for their miracle Jesus comes onto the scene and meets this one man who's been there for 38 years. Well, he's been there a long time. He's been an invalid. He's been paralyzed. He's been uh, in a place where he can't move his body like maybe he wants 
could. And notice that he says something here uh, that John tells us, that he has not been paralyzed his entire life. And so one thing you need to point out is he was not 38 years old. He had been an invalid for 38 years. And now he's been at this particular pool for a very long time. And Jesus asked them this very specific question. He says, do you want to be healed? Now, he has his focus set on this particular pool, and he has no idea that the one who can actually heal him is the person talking to him. He's looking at something that has no power, that, that often, that what actually has more to it is a rumor or superstition or some type of belief around it that's not verifiable, that no one knows if this has actually happened. And maybe God did a miracle through these waters, but we have no evidence of that. What we know is there's a multitude of people, and if it had been an effective thing, then maybe there wouldn't be a multitude of people there. But somehow, right, somehow they have gathered together with this belief. Let's just stop right there because sometimes what people will suggest, well, if it, did, if, if it didn't work or it didn't happen at one time, well, there wouldn't be a multitude of people there. Let me ask you, does popularity make something true, yes or no? Good job, right? Uh, uh, thank you. I'm proud of you. But just because something is popular and there are people gathered around it does not make it verifiable. It does not make it true. Someone say amen to that. So you should just let that resonate deep in your heart that popularity is not evidence of truthfulness. Popularity is not evidence of truthfulness. And then notice that very quickly what has happened is this man has convinced himself that this is his lot, this is his uh, life, but notice where he puts the blame. So he asked him, do you want to be well? And maybe you think, man, that's abs absolutely. But if, if that was the case, why would Jesus ask him that? And what we know is that oftentimes uh, our decisions and our mindsets are actually what help create the condition and quality of our lives. Someone say amen to that. So, sometimes we, get, uh, we have to get to a place where we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Someone say amen to that. And notice and, and that this man says, Sir, after his questions, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Notice how he answers. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And if I do, someone else gets there First, or in other words, your first point that this man says, it's always someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault. You, have you noticed that in your world? Have you noticed that when you try to discipline your children and you walk in the room and you go, what is going on here? <laughs> right? Right? Uh, I didn't say it. 
that time, right? Uh, what, what, what is going on in here? And quickly, what do they say? He did it, right? She did it. Well, let me tell you, well, this is what, like, did you hit your brother with that toy across his head? Well, see what had happened was, right? Like, he made me, he made you hit him in the head with that? Like, what are you doing? And, and yet, this is in our nature very quickly, and this has always been the story. Adam, Adam, why did you take of the one thing I told you not to? It was the woman you gave me, right? <laughs> Wish that one still worked, right? Uh, was tried one time, didn't work then, and will never work again. Amen, fellas, right? The, the woman you get. So which, whose fault is it? Can you imagine that moment? You're blaming the woman and you're blaming God at the same time. Bad idea, right? Not a good, uh, uh, why is it that you did this? Well, you did it. She did it. What was the economy? Well, it was, it was someone else. It was my boss. It was someone, it, 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 what was it? Well, it, what's the system? It, it's, it's stacked against me. Notice that the conversations we are having today are not new conversations. They are ancient old conversations, and they have less and less to do with everybody else, and they have everything to do with Let's Let's try that one more time. Right. <laughs> has everything to do with you. you. No, no, me, no, you. Uh, no, you know me, right? I'm just Help me help you help me help you, right? Uh, the, the idea that you have responsibility, that you must take responsibility, that you must take responsibility for your mindset. You must take responsibility for your actions, your habits, your character. Because your, your character, I, I, rem I remember a speech based on a dream that talked about that we will be judged based on our character. And yet, Oftentimes, what we do is we want to point fingers at other people and say it's someone else's fault and not take responsibility for our own actions. It's someone else's fault. And see, the Bible gives us a hint into that our mindset about things. And notice that Jesus is asking him a mindset question. He's asking, where is your mind? Where is your focus? Do you want to be well? The first thing that this man has to do is change the way he thinks about his life. And then ultimately, Jesus is going to take him on a journey to ultimately ask him to change his mind about who Jesus is and about his way versus God's way. But the first thing he has to ask is, do you want to be well, some of us need to ask those questions. Instead of, instead of pointing the finger at everything else, we have to ask our own, ourselves our own question. Do we want to be well? Do we want our soul to be well? Do, do we want to continue to be depressed? Do we want to continue to be anxious? Do we want to continue to fail when it comes to how we handle our money? Do we want to continue to fail in our marriages and our parents? Do we want to be well? We all have to take ownership of that. Somebody say amen, amen. to that. See, the Bible says that 
that as a man thinks in his heart, so he shall be. I've said this numerous times, but we're going to kind of go through it again. This old adage that you've had, you put it on your refrigerator magnet, but it it becomes true. And this is a a very helpful way for you to diagnose and, and and assess where your overall mentality is. See, uh, it goes like this. My thoughts will become my you guys have been here a while. Uh, you guys are, I've heard this before, right? Uh, my thoughts will become my words. My words will become my actions. My actions will become my habits. My habits will be my character, and my character will determine my destiny or my future. Let's try it again. All right, you ready? So we're going to say it again. My thoughts will become my words, my words, my actions, my actions, my habits, my habits, my character, my character, my destiny. Or as a man thinks in his heart, so he shall be. And so you can begin to examine, why did I say that? Why did I answer that way? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will vomit friend have you noticed this right uh, or the thumbs will tweet right out of uh, oh that's old thing right uh, uh first service facebook are you with me uh right right uh, uh, spam emails right right forward 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 like have you seen this right uh, uh, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth will Speak, And so one thing that you can examine very quickly, and notice where this man's heart is. He believes that it's everyone else's fault, the condition that he's in. He's convinced that the world is against him. He's convinced that his lot in life is somebody else's fault or his way to be healed. But notice that there's some, there's some clues here that help us with what's actually going on. So, so maybe you say, Pastor Sam, maybe it wasn't his fault. But notice what Jesus says to him afterwards. He finds him, and we're going to deal with what the, the Jews have a problem with, but he goes and tells the Jews, they see him carrying his mat, and they're like, wait a second, what are you, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do that. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Who decides what you're allowed to do? Somebody say, oh, no, to that. Uh, And and so uh, Jesus then finds him because there's a crowd. And on this particular day, Jesus is not there for the multitudes. Let Let me just squash that life is fair and that equality of of outcome is guaranteed to everyone because the Bible says there was a multitude of people there and Jesus went and talked to one joker. Right? You You may think this book is about one thing, You may think this book is about you. You may think this book is about changing society. You may think that this book is about making sure everything is fair across the board. But this book is a story about Jesus and he writes a better story than you could ever possibly imagine. And if the story is about him and not about us, then we're able to see the point of the story. We're able to see just how strategic Jesus 
is. So he goes away from the crowds. Think about that just for a moment. Think about Jesus having the power to heal the entire multitude of people. He does not. He withdraws and then finds this man again to leave us this particular story. And he says this. He says, see, you're well. I can imagine like what this guy's, his mindset is. Well, well, was it finally my turn? Was this based on my merit? Was this based like I've been given something? Maybe I deserved it. Maybe it was just my time. And, and yet now maybe he's starting to put himself out in a different social status because he's no longer a part of the invalid crowd. He's no longer a part of the Bethesda porches. He's now made his way into the temple where he doesn't have to hang with those guys anymore. Anymore. And I wonder what his attitude is now. He didn't even ask Jesus' name the first time. Think about all of these clues in the story. He just gets his mat and goes, okay, and then walks away. Notice other stories where Jesus will heal lepers, and then uh, the, the one leper who comes back to worship at the feet of Jesus. Know that some people are concerned with their miracle and then other peoples will be moved beyond their miracle to the miracle worker and then they'll discover that he's indeed Messiah, King of the world. Yet sometimes we get so focused on our part of the story that when we get what we want, will we change our thoughts, our actions, our habits, and our character? Or will we end up worse off than when we started somebody say oh no and yet Jesus comes to him and says listen hey see that you are well but what's he say to them he says sin no more sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you now, here's what we got to begin to define. What is sin, and what are the consequences of sin, and where do the consequences of sin come from? Are you with me? So, so here's what we first have to understand, is that sin means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. There, there's there's a, a movie, uh, The Patriot, where Mel Gibson says to his sons, he says, aim small, miss small. Aim big, miss big. And what you realize when uh, what they were talking about is an archer's bow. And the same words for sin is this idea of missing the target with a bow and arrow. So if at the start of my arrow, I'm slightly off, the more I begin to stretch out the trajectory of this arrow, or in other words, if my life at first begins to veer off slightly, that's pretty good preaching, huh? Right? <laughs> right? If the trajectory of my life, at the start of it, slightly off, as my life goes, as my actions pile up, as my habits become solidified, as this becomes who I am, where is it that my life would be at? So then what you realize is that the consequence of sin is not God who is in heaven punishing us because he's like a mob boss who said it's my way or it's coitins for you, friend. What he's saying is, is that when you choose your way 
over God's way. And God's way is the way he designed things to work. If you're asking the question, how did my marriage get here? You have to ask the question, are we conducting ourselves inside of our marriage the way God designed this to work? Somebody say amen to that. If my children, their behaviors, their habits, their actions, am I parenting the way God has designed this to work? Or am I beginning to mix my way or uh, uh, Instagram influencer's way or a New York Times bestseller's way or just do your way and then you kind of mix that up with a Sunday morning only type of experience then maybe at first it doesn't seem to go off maybe at first you say well yeah I mean it's I mean it's only a slight variation but then as this goes on as your kids get older as they end up in university, as they begin to take spouses and raise children, then you're having to ask the question, man, where did I compromise? Where did I decide my way was better than God's way? And then the, the inverse is true, that when we do God's way, when we honor him above all things, we begin to receive the blessing of falling in line like gears going together rather than grinding apart and breaking apart. And man, it just feels like we're out of sync. We're out of rhythm. And then you realize that there's these things that Eugene Peterson would call the rhythm of grace, like the tension in life is not pulling me back, but it's pushing me forward. It doesn't mean that everything is always going to go my way. It doesn't mean that always I'll, I'll have health and wealth. But what it does mean is that more often than not, how I manage my money, how I deal with my relationships, how I think about sexuality, how I think about my overall life, it tends to go better this side, man, you post. How many teaching team members I got over here? No, come on, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mark. Uh, uh, right, right. So when he says, "Sin no more," least something worse happening to you. What he's implying is that potentially what got him in this mess in the first place is a result of his sin. So what he's implying is who knows what kind of debauchery, what kind of activities this man was a part of that now has cost him to a point where now for 38 years he's at the Bethesda porches and he's waiting waiting just for some superstitious miracle. And he's convinced, although he knows in his heart that the reason why he's there is his fault and his mistake. Instead of owning it, moving forward, trying to have some type of quality of life, you know what he says? It's someone else's fault. And yet Jesus, through that, goes to him and says, no, 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 no. Do you want to be well? This is something that we have to deal with because what we deal with right now, and we talked about 
Last week, we talked about the prosperity gospel. We talked about, ultimately, the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. The ultimate idea that if you follow Jesus, then health, wealth, and security, and friendships, and success will be your lot. But what you don't understand is God is writing a story. And oftentimes, when you think what you want is success, what you might need is suffering. That's a hard one to think through. Because the reality is, is that our suffering shapes us. And we can be confident in our suffering. Why? Because we know it's his suffering that has saved us. And we know the story is written. And this story is about him. So I'll go headlong into this suffering because I know this moment is merely that. A moment. And the half-brother of Jesus, James, would say, this is like a, a glimpse. This is a mist. This is a moment. It's here and it's gone. And what you'll find, just like a woman who endures childbirth, and I know that's controversy to say that a woman is the one who endures childbirth, but that's scientific and biblical. Someone say amen to that. Mother, woman, distinct from men, and we should know that. We should honor that. That one's free, okay? Uh, so Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning and travailing like a woman in childbirth waiting for the manifestation of the sons and, and daughters of God the children of God that the whole earth is waiting and travailing for the day that we will fully realize that Jesus became king of the Jews so that we could no longer be called the children of Israel but the children of God so that he can adopt us and that he's, he, he's telling us that he is God's son. And we're going to deal even more with that. God's, God has how many sons? Jesus says, calls him father. This is not a normal thing when he does this. But here's what we have to deal with is there's some ideas, that, the prosperity gospel, but then there's this other thing and people call it the social gospel. This idea that as the church, what we are meant to do above all is meet the physical needs of people. That our mission should be to eradicate poverty and to help people, to, to go and alleviate them from the streets and put them where? But that's become a conversation and more so this year than any other year. And yet notice that Jesus does some things different than maybe what has been propagated to you about what the purpose of the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the gathering of Christians, that, that yet there's a deeper, bigger conversation. Although Jesus says, hey, when you, you take care of the least of these, you do it also unto me. We then create full doctrines and dogmas that actually remove us from what the person of Jesus actually does. We cannot segment and say Jesus would do this and not actually look at what Jesus actually did. Notice that maybe if you were an adherer to the social gospel, you would be very frustrated with how Jesus conducts himself at the five porches of Bethesda. Wait, wait a second, Jesus, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. What do you mean? There's a whole lot of people here. Yeah. 
Hey, Jesus, we, we got we to find a spot for them. Hey, Jesus, we, we, we got to get them. Well, we got to get them out of this because this is ultimately their biggest need. Notice that even this past year, what people are most concerned about. I've been wrestling with this. I've been wrestling with uh, churches being shut down or restaurants being shut down. And notice, note, I, I'm trying to like begin to rationalize where this thinking comes from. And so journey with me for, for just a second. Notice that when you could go back into restaurants, that was when everything was back to normal. Right? But yet some people would still condemn us for meeting indoors, worshiping together. On Tuesday, this all changes and it's no big deal. Uh, I said that? You didn't, you've been talking about it. I'm not allowed to talk about it? Okay, whatever. Right? So here's what we have to be careful of. We begin to think things went back to normal when we could feed our bellies. Here's what the Bible says. In the last days, they will call evil good. Good evil. Their gods will be their stomachs. So here, here's what then happens. If, if God is your stomach, the greatest need in the world today is people not having food in their bellies. You'll then think that's the greatest need. You'll be convinced if someone has no food, they have no God. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says and predicts it. Let me just help you. We will never eradicate poverty. Ever. Here's why. Jesus says the poor will be with you always. Because poverty has more to do with your heart. Do you wish to be well? Do you want to do what's right? Do you want to manage it? There are programs and there are things all over the country, but oftentimes people will not give up their way in order to be well, to be whole, to be healthy. And yet, we think that our, the greatest thing we should do is feed people, clothe people, and we should. But we then also have to say, sin no more. At least something worse happens to you. See, what we've been convinced of is that we can preach the gospel without preaching the gospel. We can just be social in our gospel. But here's the reality is, the social gospel is no gospel at all. You can write that down. It's second on there. The social gospel is no gospel at all. Because the social gospel will be then get, begin to dictate what is good news based on what's popular. And you already agreed that what's popular is not evidence for what is true. So it's just like, well, most churches are doing this. That doesn't make it right or true. Well, most Christians, this is what we should, this is what the community at large is saying about you. That doesn't make it true. Because social gospel means that I'm concerned with your status socially. 
so that if I can somehow help you elevate in society, then I've helped you. And that's good news. I got an email, which I do from time to time and never from people who actually attend here. Uh, I'm saying you guys don't email me enough. Uh, I got an email and in the email, a couple of emails, I didn't respond to them, but it was this, that from their perspective and I mean, he had a good heart. He said he really wanted to help me be influential in our community. And uh, he said I had real potential. But he, he said this line, he claimed to follow Jesus. And in his mind, I wasn't. Because what he said was, I was more concerned about the people who came in here than the greater large of the community but I don't know most of you <laughs> right I want to but it doesn't matter if I know you let's just say that it matters that we're all together following this story that's all about he knows you I can never know you I can never know you fully and listen if I'm your guy we're all in trouble right just reality. And yet, one thing he said this. He was criticizing us meeting rather than the primary ministry being the social gospel. Feeding, although we do feed. Every week. Multiple days a week. Every month. For more than 15 years. But you don't hear us get up and elevate that. We don't pat ourselves on the back. We just do it. I mean, some people are new to the church like, you guys have a, a farmer's market? Like once a month? Yeah, when did you guys start doing that? I don't know, like 12 years ago. <laughs> right? We won't get in here every week and go, hey, this is what this is all about. You, I don't want anyone to be confused about what this thing is about. This is all about the person of Jesus. Because in him is life. And outside of him is nothing else. And in this email he said, You would rather save a man's soul than liberate him from the systems that oppress him. And I said, Yes. Because Jesus says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If he gains a better social status, gets a car, a house, has food in his belly, takes up his mat and walks. Jesus comes back around and says, hey bud, I love you. You're well, that's good. There's something better than this moment. It's who you're talking to, the Messiah, the King of the world. And I can tell you, friend, how you got yourself doing your way got you here. But I want to show you a different way. So sin no more. Repentance is changing the way you think. In the Greek, it's this word metanoia. It means to change the way you think so you do something different. The first thing is changing your mindset. Do I want to be well? Do I want to be godly? 
Do I, do I want it God's way or my way? And you have to change the way you think so that it changes your destiny, friend. And that destiny is an eternal one, not a temporal one. You could, you could feed him one day. But if all that matters is one day, not the totality of eternity, So, how can Jesus do this? Why is it that he's giving him a contrast? Because he's God in the flesh. And his ways are not our ways. See, this passage shows us, and we're going to deal a little bit more with it next week, and I'm running out of time. So, let, let, me, just, let me just stop right here. Ultimately, what this passage shows us is that Jesus is claiming to be in charge. They're, 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 they're starting to criticize the man. Why are you working on the Sabbath? Why are you picking up your mat? And what they're, what they're concerned with is you didn't do what we told you to do. And Jesus is going, wait a second. Does it matter what you, what you think you should do? Because here's what they're, they're doing. They had all these rules in order to keep the rules. You've never heard of things like that. <laughs> You'd be like, I'm just trying to do what's right, do what's good. But no, 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 but you, you didn't do what we told you to do. And see, there, there was in, in these cultures, uh, the, the idea was resting on the Sabbath. The idea was God forever pointing to the day he would put to death death happened on the sabbath at sundown on friday he said it is finished and then into the tomb he went for from from the opening of genesis before the foundations of the world this was the plan and yet it was always meant to point to the person of Jesus. And yet Jesus is right in front of them. And the rules they've put in place to keep the rule. The rule of resting. The rule of Sabbath. The rule that would point us to an eternal Sabbath. Where Jesus is going to claim in other passages, I am the Sabbath. I am rest. I am the point. And yet they have all these rules. They have all these rules about who's in charge and how to keep the rules. But Jesus says, I'm working and my father is working. He does something revolutionary. He calls God his father. And maybe culture has taught you to, to try to put a hierarchy between Jesus and the Father. And maybe there are, are fields of thoughts and people knock on your door and try to convince you that Jesus is somehow some lesser God, but here's what John wants to make emphatic and what he tells you. Look at verse 18. They were seeking, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but let me tell you this, he did not break the Sabbath at all. He broke their rules on how to keep the Sabbath. And so when you start judging people because they're not doing the thing you ought to, 
you think they ought to do, the way you think they ought to do it. We've had a hard time with that this year, haven't we? You have to decide who's in charge. It says, because he was not breaking the Sabbath, but he was, but this is not the only reason, but he was even calling God his own father. And maybe you think that's a hierarchy, but to them it was not. Here's what John makes the claim. Making himself equal with God. That's why every single week we say, I believe he's the most famous person, the most important person to walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. It's not my ideas, it's what the scripture teaches me. And maybe movies and propaganda have convinced you to say that Jesus did not claim to be God, but that's exactly what got him killed. Because equal means equal. <laughs> You're welcome. Equal means equal. The same as. Jesus is God. That means he's in charge. That means you better decide whether you want to do his thing or your thing. Because I can tell you that something bad might happen to you if you do your thing. Not, not because he's punishing you. Because you know when you got your thing the last that time, it didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. Somebody say amen to that. Because the reality is, is I, I told you, and I'll quickly say this just to give you. I've talked to, last week I gave you an update on what happened at the hospital. You can go back over the past few weeks. And, and that's the first time I'd updated you in a few weeks. And I just met with... Uh, the administrators at the hospital who were so humble and so uh, thankful that I would meet with them. And I'm like, you want to meet with me? I mean, I'm the son of a coal miner's daughter. And I can tell you, they don't want me to meet with them where I'm from, right? Like, uh, you just don't know who I am, right? But I got to meet with them. And here's what was wild, just to tell you how God works. Because if I'd gotten my way, if I'd made a scene, if I'd went back into the hospital and let them, let them know, Rather than doing God's way, man, the story would have not ended up, and it's still being written. I can tell you that 12-12 on Sunday morning, when I walked back to my office, I got a text from the administrator saying, today I felt called to watch your online worship stream. I missed most of the 9 a.m., so I watched all of the 1045. The first time I'd updated, and I was specifically talking about her and I was talking about how humble and how amazing her, their leadership. No idea. There we go. Today I just somehow felt called to watch. When you think he's doing one thing, he's doing billions. So let's trust his way. Let's repent of our way. Let's go and sin no more. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask you that you would help us see that the point is you. And the point moves beyond the moment. But it moves us to the message of the good news of the gospel. That you are king. You are 
our gracious God and King, the humble, suffering servant. We thank you that you're in charge. We'll obey you even when it's not popular, when it doesn't elevate our social status. We'll look to your way versus our way in all things for your glory and the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?